I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this podcast, we're going to talk frankly but sensitively about issues some people might find disturbing, including rape and suicide. If you or someone you know is suicidal, in the U.S., dial 988. Check out this podcast's notes page for information on LGBT plus mental health resources in your community. Something that I have heard nearly everyone admit about this story and the case of Ed Buck, it's hard. The facts themselves, hard. Two gay black men were found dead. Two men dead 18 months apart in Ed Buck's West Hollywood apartment. Ed Buck was accused of torturing black men, getting them high and addicted to meth. He's accused of shooting them up with meth. And he would watch these black men wearing the white underwear that he gave them writhe in pain. And even after Jamel Moore died of an overdose in Ed Buck's apartment, the local power structure let Ed Buck keep endangering men. He kept torturing them and killing them. 18 months after Jamel Moore died, Timothy Dean was also found dead. Same circumstances. It's hard to wrap your head around that, and it can make your heart sick. Now I've learned in journalism that even if you are not a victim, you can be traumatized. Later in this episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into trauma and mental health. We'll examine some of the psychological hurdles Ed Buck's victims may have been navigating. For that matter, we'll take a look at social-emotional challenges that are happening all around us. The challenges so many of us are facing every single day. But first, we're going to try to make sense of the senseless, 
to try to explain why it took so long for Ed Buck to be held accountable for his crimes. This is Shattering the System. Today, we get a framework for understanding not only his victims, but also the perpetrators in this case. More after this break. On January 7th, 2019, responding to a 911 call from Ed Buck's apartment, paramedics found a 55-year-old black man lying unresponsive on a mattress on the floor. He was naked except for white briefs. His mouth was obscured by a dark purge of blood. This was the second time in 18 months that police had responded to a call and found a man dead in Ed Buck's apartment. Ed Buck once again told sheriff's deputies the dead man was his friend. Toxicology reports showed an overdose of methamphetamine mixed with alcohol had killed Timothy Dean. Here's L.A. County District Attorney Jackie Lacey talking about why she wasn't able to arrest Ed Buck at the time. We can't file a criminal case based on who has the loudest voice. If we go out there and arrest him now, the clock starts ticking, and it wouldn't be ethical right now to arrest him until we really had the evidence. Eight months after Timothy Dean was found dead in Ed Buck's apartment, yet another man implicated Ed Buck in a serious crime. He said Buck offered him cash and marijuana in exchange for sex. And according to prosecutors, Buck gave the young man a drink, saying it was vodka. The young man lost consciousness, awaking to Ed Buck, injecting him with a syringe. This while he had metal clamps placed on his body, making it hard for him to move. Now, this victim lived to tell the story. He escaped or fled Buck's apartment and ran to a nearby gas station for help. Hank Scott covered West Hollywood over the years and the Ed Buck case. He said Ed Buck lured men to his apartment in a variety of ways, using sites such as Grinder or Adam for Adam. He enticed the men with offers of drugs and money, and he used words like generous in his profile. Generous means I'll pay you for sex. And Ed Buck would do something like that, I'm sure, because that's how he lured these people over to this 63-year-old white gay man's apartment and put on the tidy whiteies, the white underwear. And that was just one of his weird passions. He then would share other little drugs. And there were some cases where apparently, and with the testimony, he shared not so dangerous drugs with young men to get them in a state where he could, without their being aware of it, slowly inch them into their arms. Now this was not, meth comes in many forms. This was not a drug that they snorted or a drug they took the pill. Ed Buck liked to shoot them up. It's called slamming. And um, that was something that Ed Buck had a strange passion for. I don't feel normal. I honestly think it has to do with the drugs. It makes me feel horrible. Ed Buck is the one to thank. He gave me my first injection of crystal meth. It was painful. I wasn't politically aligned with Ed Buck. I didn't see, I I didn't share his worldview. Um, And uh, my experience was that anybody who was on the other side of him, um, he made an enemy. 
Lindsay Horvath served on West Hollywood City Council for many years. She's now on the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Historically, the relationship between the sheriff and WeHo's gay community is problematic, says Horvath. The sheriff's office is in the heart of the gay nightlife district. If you're at the LGBT nightlife destinations that most people associate with the city, you can probably see this sheriff's station. It sort of goes without saying that you weren't pleased with how the sheriff's deputies handled Ed Buck, which is why we're here. Absolutely. So keeping in that train of thought of not being trained and not always being culturally competent, help me understand what would frustrate you about, say, the sheriff's deputies and dealing with the death of Jamel Moore. Oh, well, that was, it was more than frustration. It was absolutely devastating to hear about the death of Jamel Moore. The sheriff's deputies who were involved in the investigation had indicated at some point thereafter that it wasn't the first time that they had been called to that particular residence. And so not only in that specific investigation, but just knowing that there were ongoing issues with that residence and to know that ultimately it resulted in the death of now we know multiple people at that residence was just absolutely heartbreaking to know that it was something that was known to law enforcement and yet it still happened. Nixon said she was flabbergasted when she saw the surveillance images Fox 11 obtained exclusively from Buck's apartment building the night her son was found dead. They allegedly show another young man trying to get up to Buck's apartment while deputies were still on scene before he shoot away. While Buck was showing up to bars in WeHo and the turnstile of black men into his apartment found no lack of men willing to enter his place. Something in the political landscape, though, kind of shifted. Ed Buck's crimes began to attract the attention of the federal government. So I was very concerned. My first concern was making sure that he didn't do this to another victim. That's Chelsea Norell. She's with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Central District of California. Even after the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, these are the local prosecutors, failed to indict Ed Buck, Norell says her office, the federal prosecutors, could not turn the blind eye to the fact that two men had ended up dead in Buck's apartment. And they began to watch his place. Making sure that we had units on the house where we could observe him, where we could monitor the ingress and egress of people coming in and out of his apartment. Um, How long did that go on for? Um, we came in in the summer of 2019, and we immediately started taking measures to the extent we could with the resources that we had. We tried to monitor him as much as we could. But then that hit a fever pitch when he had another victim in September of 2019. That victim, identified as John Doe, that victim is the one who escaped Buck's apartment after he was injected with a dangerous dose of meth. John Doe very well may have saved his own life when he fled Buck's apartment and called 911. John Doe is alive. His reports of what happened to him were just too hard to ignore. I'm Sonari Glenton, and this is Shattering the System. More after a break. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages, they starved us, they beat us, they burned us, and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. 
Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The L.A. District Attorney, Jackie Lacey, was getting a lot of heat. And one of the chief complaints against her office was, well, she didn't indict or prosecute Ed Buck. Now, we need to talk about Jackie Lacey because she is a pioneer. Born and raised in Crenshaw in Los Angeles, she joined the LADA's office in 1986 and spent 25 years on a steady climb. Lacey was elected as the district attorney for Los Angeles in 2012, making history. She was the first woman and the first African-American to hold that office. Jackie Lacey was actually an anomaly among the newer big city prosecutors. She had a reputation for being tough on crime. And while it's true that L.A. County has become a Democratic stronghold, it's kind of important to remember that while the city of L.A. is deep blue and the city of West Hollywood, where Ed Buck lived, is bluer still, there are 86 other cities in L.A. County. And the farther you get from the center of Los Angeles, the redder and redder those cities get. Jackie Lacey, the district attorney, was a longtime Democratic operative inside the city. So she had to portray herself as a progressive there. And outside the city, she wanted to portray an image that was tough on crime. The sheriff's department, they saw that uh, Mr. Moore was dead, but they investigated it sort of like an overdose. And uh, we, you know, they found some things, but we contend that it's illegal how they search for it. They needed a warrant. And and state court could never come in. After the death of Jamel Moore, L.A. County D.A., the local prosecutor, Jackie Lacey, said there wasn't enough evidence to charge at Buck. There were still no charges after a second man, Timothy Dean, was found dead in Buck's apartment. Criticism of Jackie Lacey got intense. Activists and regular people wanted Buck prosecuted. Meanwhile, there were an array of changes to the way the government did business. Remember, this is the Trump era when it came to drug policy. This shift in drug policy was a response to the opioid epidemic. And with a ballooning number of deaths, there was a shift to stop treating those overdoses as casualties of addiction and to start treating them as crime. And historically, overdoses were treated more like an accident, in my judgment. Nick Hanna is the former U.S. attorney for the Central District of California, a Trump administration appointee. You know, police would be called and it would be, um, you know, somebody overdosed and that's tragic, but it wasn't treated sort of as a criminal offense and what can be done. On the federal side, there's a very powerful federal statute that makes it a crime to supply drugs that result in a death. And that's a unique federal statute with a very heavy penalty, a 20-year mandatory minimum. It would be the response to the opioid crisis that would make that statute look attractive. All the officials we talked to from the U.S. Attorney's Office talk about cooperation, almost as if it were Sesame Street. No one will breathe a word about politics. 
but there is always a bit of politics or one-upsmanship between the various law enforcement agencies. So while Jackie Lacey, a local Democrat, was looking vulnerable in front of voters, the federal prosecutor, a Trump appointee, was going to handle her biggest headache. Again, Nick Hanna. Uh, we decided to set up this task force to try to see whether we could make an impact and stop people who were, you know, just making money and not caring whether they killed somebody or not. And in that context, I believe it was one of the task force officers who was assigned to that task force, one of the local sheriff's deputies, who brought the Ed Buck investigation to the attention of our office and said, look, essentially, there's this case that I'm aware of. It's not a fentanyl case, but it's similar in the sense of somebody providing drugs that results in death. And, you know, maybe you guys could take a look at it. And so I assigned prosecutors in my office to take a look at it, to work with the sheriff's department and also with DEA to take a look at the case and see what we thought and see what the evidence was, what had already been gathered, what additional investigative steps could be taken, and whether or not we thought this was something that merited a federal prosecution. What's indisputable is that two Black men had died of overdoses. And while federal prosecutors were investigating whether they could pursue charges, L.A. County D.A. Jackie Lacey, the local prosecutor, was arguing that she didn't have a case against that buck. Now, the tension was building for a case against Buck. With the death of Timothy Dean, the Homicide Bureau in the Sheriff's Department had launched a new investigation. Remember, we just heard Nick Hanna, who was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Hanna is a Justice Department lawyer, and he says someone from the local Sheriff's Office is the one who flagged the case to the feds. Sound like politics? Anyway, let's take a listen to my interview with Lindsay Horvath, who served twice as West Hollywood's mayor. She chose not to bring the case. Say more. I think, well, for whatever reason, she chose not to pursue the case. I called her office after Jamel Moore's death several days in a row, asking her office to help create safety for people who wanted to come forward and testify and share information about what they knew about the circumstances surrounding Jamel's death, but what they also knew in terms of the circumstances of what happened at that residence. And it took many people coming forward, including my phone calls, not only including my phone calls, for her to even be willing to grant immunity for people to come forward and share valuable information. We have to remember the local politics at play here. Jackie Lacey, the local district attorney, was being hit on all sides politically. Now, to be criticized constantly on the west side of Los Angeles, that's dangerous for Democrats. Not just in L.A., but national Democrats. A significant portion of the money that Democrats from all across the country raise comes from homes that are just a turn off of Sunset Boulevard for miles and miles. And another thing. Often, DAs can be the fall guys during politically dicey times. I mean, if you've seen an episode of Law and Order, you can get what I'm saying, right? District attorneys are very loath to bring cases that they aren't 100% sure that they can win. Any loss will be the basis for an opponent's political ad. And Lacey had an upcoming election. In many ways, she was stuck between a sheriff's office that had a tradition of cutting corners a Trump-appointed federal prosecutor, her own tough-on-crime image, and all those dead Black bodies. I think 
Well, clearly the United States government was able to bring a case in federal court based on the exact same evidence that she was able to review. And she elected, despite reviewing the same evidence, she elected not to pursue the case. The district attorney framed this as a problem of he said, he said, as if her hands were tied. Lindsay Horvath, the former mayor of West Hollywood, says that's just not the case. I mean, the idea that there were people out there who were willing to tell their stories despite surviving traumatic experiences, and she wasn't going to create a safe place for them to come forward and testify, was absolutely absurd to me. I'm glad that the U.S. government did take up the case. Again, Nick Hanna, the former U.S. attorney for the Central District of California. So we started in conjunction with the DEA, a opioid overdose task force in the fall of 2018. And we brought in some state and local officers to that task force with the goal being to investigate overdose deaths like the crime scene they really are, right? And to determine whether or not someone should be held accountable for providing drugs that that killed somebody. The feds were building the scaffolding to prosecute people in drug cases that end in overdose deaths. They were creating a pathway to charging Ed Buck. So in the summer of 2019, the sheriff's office approached the U.S. attorney's office regarding the overdose deaths of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean, who died in 2017 and 2019, respectively. Chelsea Norell is a federal prosecutor. The DA's office at that point had declined the Jamel Moore investigation, but it was my understanding that they had reopened the investigation of both deaths at the same time that sheriffs brought the investigation to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So we were working in parallel together at the outset of the investigation starting in the summer of 2019. The chief of international money laundering and international narcotics recruited Norell to look into Buck. I initially reviewed all of the reports from witnesses from the scene at Buck's apartment after the deaths and immediately saw that we had a disturbing pattern of what I later learned to be party in play, which was Buck luring his victims to his apartment to inject them with methamphetamine and then on some occasions sexually assault his victims. So as soon as I saw that, I knew that there were aspects of the case where we didn't have jurisdiction, but that if we could show he distributed the drugs that ultimately killed his victims, that we had drug distribution resulting in death charges that could carry severe penalties. Seven hundred and eighty-two days after Jamel Moore died, but only six days after the surviving victim called the police, Ed Buck was finally arrested September 17, 2019. He was charged with maintaining a drug house, battery causing serious injury, and administering methamphetamine. All felonies. The judge set his bail for $4 million. And while Ed Buck was held up in jail, all that time he went free would have serious consequences for Jackie Lacey. 
she would be one of several officials whose eventual election loss could be directly related, at least in part, to Ed Buck. Now, Jackie Lacey became the face of what was broken in the system. One of the leading voices in this story is Jasmine Canick. Canick was an early and very visible leader in the campaign to put public pressure on officials after Jamel Moore died. And Jasmine Canick has been doing her work as a journalist and an activist for nearly two decades in Los Angeles. And there are a few voices that have been more consistent in the fight to bring Ed Buck to justice. Jasmine Canick was instrumental in bringing about national attention. Among other things, she pointed out Ed Buck's political donations. We reached out to Jasmine Canick for an interview or for any participation. She declined our requests. We also reached out to Letitia Nixon. She was also a very strong advocate demanding justice for the death of her son, Jamel Moore. We did not receive a response from Nixon after multiple requests for an interview. Now, while Lacey was handling or not handling the deaths in Ed Buck's apartment, she'd been fighting for her political life. She was challenged on the left by a progressive. He was one of many progressives who were part of a trend nationwide at the time. Then on election day, as voters were waiting to cast their ballots, and I have to say that this is one of the most bizarre things I've seen in local politics or most people have seen in local politics. The district attorney's husband pulled the gun on Black Lives Matter protesters on primary election day. She would lose her re-election by nearly a quarter million votes in 2020. Jackie Lacey declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Her husband, David Lacey, died in September of 2022, and she said she didn't think that this would be a good time to do interviews. But she did send a statement, which I will read in full. I've given my remarks on the Ed Buck case in the past. I stand by my statements. Unfortunately, there are a number of people who cling to the misguided belief that Buck had influence on the LADA's office. He did not. Prior to the death of Jamel Moore, I had never heard of him. When I found out Buck had donated $100 to my campaign in 2012, I returned it. I am grateful that the United States attorney used their resources and laws to convict Buck of his despicable conduct. I am glad the families of the victims got justice. At the state level, we simply did not have the evidence and laws to prosecute him. Sadly, this type of conduct, sex for drugs, continues. Most of the time, these deaths are written off by the coroner as overdoses. Proposed changes to the law to make furnishing drugs to others are often rejected as an attempt to bring back, and she has in quotations, the war on drugs. We as a society want this behavior to stop, but we are not courageous enough to enact laws to stop it. That statement from Jackie Lacey, the first black woman to be L.A. County's district attorney. This is shattering the system. After a break, we'll explore the psychological underpinnings of what happened in this case. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages, They starved us, they beat us, they burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. 
Oh great, more dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many dark twists and turns to the story that I have to say that reporting this out has been hard. Not as hard as the lived experience of the victims, but listening to the facts has an effect on me and the team of people working on this story. It may even have an effect on you. And it made me think about Jamel Moore, Timothy Dean, and John Doe, and all the other unfortunate souls who went into Ed Buck's apartment and engaged in his fetishes. What sort of mental space were they in? What made them who they are? Timothy Dean knew that Jamel Moore had died in Ed Buck's apartment. What made him even speak to Ed Buck, let alone go into his apartment? Ed Buck claimed he had been abused as a child. Is that even a plausible explanation for his criminality? And I have to say, I've never seen anything quite as bonkers in politics as the late David Lacey, the district attorney, Jackie Lacey's husband, pulling a gun on Black Lives Matter protesters on Election Day. And I'm from Chicago. What sort of space was David Lacey in? And more generally, I feel like we need to explore the psychological health of people who have limited access to the support they desperately need. My people, black, queer, and trans folks. So I wanted to check in with a therapist. Hi, my name is B. Arthur. I am a licensed mental health counselor and I am an advocate for mental health for you, formerly incarcerated people, women, and my booze in the queer community. B is also founder of The Difference, a same-day therapy service. I talked to B a couple of times in relation to this show, and it's easy for me to forget that she's a therapist trained at Columbia University. That's partly because she's so relatable. She's also a part-time comedian and she's named after B. Arthur. Yes, I'm the other one. So yes, it's true. If you Google B. Arthur, there is another lady there and she do not look like me, but I'm very glad to be raised up under her tutelage. So it was just a happy accident. But yeah, I love the Golden Girls and Gone is the Gold Coast and gay people really fuck with B. Arthur. So I've been very blessed by the name. I feel I always say I'm the second coming of B. Arthur. So shout out to OGB. Right up there at the top of the systems that fail Black and queer folk, the healthcare system and especially mental health. Every principle in this story showed signs of needing mental health care. But for the Black community and Black men, the need is acute. According to the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, African-Americans are 20% more likely to have serious mental health problems, but they seek out therapy at nearly half the rate as whites. B. Arthur says, though, the problem is especially tough, not just for Black men, but... Men in general, yeah. So men in general, I think the numbers are about 70% of the people who utilize mental health services are women, right? So um, it's, I think, because men are raised in dominance, you know, and in this perceived, you know, individualist, especially in America, which has a very strong culture of avoidance, a very strong do-it-yourself mentality. It's just not in practice. It's just not a thing. It's getting better with this new generation, but um, yeah, I think because men are raised in a culture of dominance, they're not used to sharing vulnerabilities with anyone else, especially in other men. So there has actually been studies that there's what they're calling a friendship recession. And even men over 30, like one in four, don't feel they have someone to talk to on a bad day. As a therapist, I wonder, what is it that I need to know 
when I approached these story, you know, story about one of the people was did sex work, the other was you know porn star, both of them sex work, right? Yeah. So what do I need to know about them? That they are they they are human beings. They are not their job. You know, they deserve the dignity of life. You know, in their full descriptions. Um, yeah, because I do think that you know it's again one of those things when people are like, well, how do they die, right? Like, and if you go, oh, well, you know, she was working or he was a working girl then people go, okay, well, that wouldn't happen to me, right? And it's just a, a selfish instinct. So it is not about those people. I think sex workers know a lot more about people and the human condition. And I think it actually be like a solution to a lot of the society's problems. Like I genuinely believe that um, because I think a lot of sex workers, men and women and non-binary see people at their most animal, right? And because everybody's walking up right and pretending like we are not baboons, like everybody else, we are not just ape animals with just basic needs and violence and a lot of like, you know, non-functioning brain parts. So there's a lot of wisdom to be learned from sex workers, particularly because most wisdom comes from wounds. So we've seen a lot of broken people go in and out of that. So I think it's helpful to tell maybe how they ended up doing that work. Not everybody who does sex work does it because they don't have options. Some people are sex positive or enjoy it or raised in ways that they don't have shame about it. I think it's important to tell their story before their death. You know, so I think the full range of their human life, you know, as a therapist, I'm always challenging my clients to address the full range of human emotion. You can't just talk about happy and gratitude. You have to pay attention to anger and sadness. So I think everybody's life deserves the full range of who they were. I think her work should just be descriptive and not definitive. So similarly in your story, yeah, make sure the victims get to be known. I want to take these people as whole beings, right? And see them as people. who they are. And Ed Buck is, I, I can, it's easy for me to see the victim as being whole. Maybe it's a little harder for me to see him as not being the boogeyman. So I think with predators, I think it's important, like, sure, they're whole people. But since we're talking about true crime, you know, I think it's complicated to try and fit all of the the lenses. And again, all the intersectionalities and all the perspectives that are happening in these violent stories, especially when people are just there for the violence. Let's be honest, right? B says we talk about crime and victims in the most digestible ways. Good guy, bad guy, hero, villain. She says she thinks human behavior is a lot more messy and a lot more complicated. A lot of times, sometimes it's just personality disorders and sometimes it's just people having, you know, being at the end of their rope. Because a lot of times with men, 80% of suicides are done by men and 80% of homicides are done by men. So when we think about putting hurt on other people, you are usually hurting inside. So unfortunately, even though patriarchy mostly benefits men, a lot of men are really emotionally struggling in this system. And it's making them want to have power over someone, which is where they told their value was. So yeah, a lot of distorted masculinity. I wish we could see more divine masculinity. I just want to re-ask that question about if you have advice for how I should approach mentally, like listening to the rest of this series and the listener. Really identify who you want to be in this story. Are you the witness? You know, are you, you know, giving the perspective of the victims or the predator or society? You know, first of all, understand and be consistent with who you want to be while you 
tell this story, the framework of what the hook is and how you want people to feel. Always work backwards, right? Reverse engineize for what you want people to be left with. And then you know what your duty is, right? Okay, I need to be distanced. I need to be data-led, data-centered, right? But at the heart of it is the reason you can tell the story better than anybody else is because you do have some of the lived experience, you know, and some of the understood fear, which is important, you know, which we need more acknowledgement of our fear. So I, I would love to see more empathy, understanding and advocacy for the pain and the fear that Black gay men go through. So you have a very big, you know, responsibility with, with that, you know, but don't let the weight of that, you know, sit on your spirit because your spirit is strong. It, this this piece obviously called to you. So, you know, just do right by it, whatever that looks like for you. And as far as like how you spiritually protect yourself and emotionally protect yourself, be grateful for your life. Be grateful for, like you said, this couldn't be you, the perspective and the foundation and the tribal support, familiar support that allowed you to be able to even have enough distance um, and enough power and privilege to be able to tell this story from a reporter and not from the victim's families. You know, so I just encourage you to do right by that. Feel encouraged and empowered for all the people who don't get a voice in this story because it's a really beautiful thing. You know, in Spanish, they say, dolor compartida es dolor de vida, which means, um, forgive my Spanish accent, but it means pain shared is pain halved, you know, and Black people don't need to feel the weight and the pressure and the pain of the struggle all the time. You know, we do need respect, rights, and protection. And I think you could do a really great job with that story from that lens. That was the therapist, coach, and sometimes comedian, the West African B. Arthur. Talking to her has really helped me with this podcast, and you can find her at BeArthurTherapy.com. That's the show. In the next episode, with Ed Buck finally arrested and going to trial, we turn to that trial. Getting their day in court will be an uphill battle for the families of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. One of the problems in getting a conviction would be finding the people to testify. This is Shattering the System. I'm your host, Sonari Glenn. Shattering the System is a production of Macro Studios and iHeart Podcasts. I'm your host, Sonari Glinton. Follow me at S-O-N-A-R-I-1 on Instagram. Our series executive producers are Charles King, Asia Corpus Wynn, Roy Orecchio, Jonathan Unger, Lindsay Hoffman, and Sonari Glinton. That's me. Our show is co-written and produced by Ralph Cooper III Erica Rodriguez is our associate producer. Dana Conway is our archival producer. Chris Mann is our audio engineer. Sound design and music provided by Chris Mann with Podshaper. Special thanks to Karen Grigsby-Bates, Portia Migas-Robertson, and Lisa Pollack. Clips provided by Michelle Thomas of the Jamel and Tim documentary. We'll be back next week. See you next time.
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.